to do this a little differently today with the boys and girls that are here for before they go to their class. I'd like to bring the boys and girls from Explorers and Pathfinders up to either this, this pew. There's actually, there's plenty of room right here. Uh, so Joshua and Hannah and uh, Maya and Lucy, everybody come right up here. Let's make some room. Let's scoot right in there close together. So as you come, we also, we want to, yeah, I think we can squeeze in pretty good there. That'll be just fine. Yeah. Ah, there you go. Th that can all be moved over that other one there. There you go. Oops. Oh, good. Hey, it's so good to see you today. Is this the beginning of Christmas time? Are you looking forward to it? Have you ever been on a really long trip with mom and dad in the car or with somebody? As at yeah, <laughs> the whole day. And when you were on that long trip, when you were on that long trip, did you ever kind of ask a question? I think some of us have heard this question. Are we there yet? Has anybody ever asked that question? Okay, well, <laughs> well, you know, when we talked last week about the prophet's candle, we saw that there was a very, very long distance that God had to cover in order for his plan to come into place that we would have the gift of Jesus, that that little baby would be laid in a manger in Bethlehem in the morning of his birth. And the unique part of it was this very, very special aspect. Jesus, the baby, laid in the manger, is the only human being who has ever been born that existed before he was in his mother's womb. This is the eternal part of God. So the Bible tells us that God humbled himself and became this tiny infant in the incarnation. And his name was Emmanuel, meaning God with us. But the distance he had to travel was a lot farther than that trip you went on. Do you remember being in the car and just thinking, when are we ever, ever going to get there? You remember? Okay, okay. I thought you did. I thought you did exactly. And and you might have been like maybe a trip you were on. I'm talking. You might have been. It might have been like oh, 300 miles, maybe 400, maybe maybe a little more than that. But the Bible tells us something amazing about angels. Now it tells us a lot about angels actually. And and first of all, it tells us that angels are these glorious beings that that dwell around the throne of God. The Bible tells us that in Isaiah chapter 6 and Revelation chapter 4 and other places that around the throne of God, these angels, it's hard to picture them, isn't it? But these angels have special missions and they move very quickly. In fact, they're, they're described in two very interesting ways in the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, the Bible tells us that God makes his angels to be like a flame and like a wind. So the wind moves swiftly across great distances and a flame ignites to illuminate. God makes his angels winds and flames of fire, it says. That sounds pretty mysterious, doesn't it? And the reason is that angels have special roles in the Bible. One of their roles is a guardian at the beginning of in the Garden of Eden when it was no longer possible for human beings to live forever because they were now in a sinful state and God was planning for their redemption. 
he put angels to guard the Garden of Eden. He also used them as messengers. You remember when Mary heard the angel and the angel came to her dwelling and appeared? Do you remember that? And then the angel, what did the angel say to her? Fear not, Mary, for you are highly favored by God. Think of the distance that angel had to cross to bring that message to Mary. In fact, the Bible tells us in one place that there's three things we could call heavens. There's third heaven and a second heaven and a first heaven. Now, that sounds kind of funny too, doesn't it? But what it means is when the Apostle Paul said he was lifted to the third heaven, it's real easy to understand, even though it's huge, it's vast, it's amazing. And that is that when you go out and you look into the sky and you see the beautiful sunrise or the, or the, the sunshine, you look across the lands, you are looking at the atmosphere around earth. And that's something we sometimes look up at and think of as the heavens. And then there's outer space, the vast reaches of outer space. And then the Apostle Paul said, there's this place that goes right into the dwelling of God. And it's so far, it's so magnificent, it's so powerful that you can't even imagine it. It means God created us to have a purpose that would outlast us, outlive us. And the angels came to show God's plan. Now, one more thing I have to tell you about the Bible to think about these angels is that the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1 that the angels do something else. Now, it's described in a funny way, and I'm going to kind of illustrate it for you. But the angels had this great distance to cross. And, and if you think of outer space, outer space is so huge that the astronomers tell us now, they really, I don't think anybody's ever counted this, but they say that there's like a hundred billion galaxies. And each of those galaxies has over a hundred billion stars in it. So if you multiply a hundred billion by a hundred billion, that's a pretty big number, isn't it? And yet, and yet God, God sent salvation to us. Yeah, he crossed an even greater distance than outer space. Because you know what the greater distance than outer space is? Is the distance between a sinful heart and a holy God. So God sent angels to cross that distance and to tell Mary. She'd yeah, that's right. Be that's right. There And what does it say? Let's say it again. He makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. It's the reason they use that wind and fire is to explain it's beyond what we can understand. But the distance, the distance, it's greater than driving to grandma's house. It's, it's far greater than any long trip you've ever been on. And here's what I want you to remember. It's so beautiful what the angels were called to do. God's gift to send salvation through Jesus Christ was so magnificent. The Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1.11 that the angels, these wonderful, luminous, magnificent beings, even they longed to look into this wonderful truth that God had made. And, and I like to think of it like this, that it's like the angels, the Bible says, we want it to be on camera here, so it's like the Bible says that they longed to look into it, and the Bible word there literally means they were standing on tiptoe, like looking over a balcony, 
and see what is God going to do. You know what that tells us? Even when Mary was told she would be the mother of Jesus, even when Joseph was told to take unto him Mary the betrothed and to take her to Bethlehem, even then those angels didn't understand it all. They had to watch it unfold. And the reason I told you all this today is because what you get from God's word as you go to class today, when you hear the teaching of God's word, when you get the gospel of Jesus Christ in your heart, it's so great that angels spanned that great distance to bring us that great message. That's why God said, they're like, they're like winds, flames of fire. But their mission is to serve the greater good news that you get given to you every day. Aren't you thankful for the good news that Jesus loves you? Would you sing with me, Jesus loves me? Let's do it together. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. The Bible tells me so. And that message is greater than anything an angel ever got to say. Because he loves you in a special way. Well, explorers and pathfinders have their class now. And actually, we can get up right from the front pew here and go ahead and make our way to class. And uh, thank you for being a part of this time together. And friends, could we pray together as explorers and pathfinders go to their class? Lord, thank you that in the reality of, this, of these angelic missions, Lord, you tell us that you sent these winds and flames of fire across the vast distance that separated the sinful heart from the holy God. Now, Lord, may we rejoice in the fullness of what still is the center of awe around the throne of God where innumerable, indescribable, unimaginable splendor surrounds and infills the celebrations of the saints who join the chorus of angelic beings saying, Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. You are worthy to receive glory, honor, and power, for by your will we were created and have our being. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning again. I just love the way kids' eyes light up when they, when they start thinking about something that's so hard to explain. It's, it's, it's unimaginable. It goes beyond uh, anything that um, mortal tongue can actually do justice to. And, and one of the things we love about being able to just tell the story 
and, uh, and dig into the story and, and, and absorb the story of the birth of Jesus is this, is this simple fact that in all that we celebrate today and on our third Advent Sunday, which for us will be two weeks from today, on the 19th, and even on the 26th, the day after Christmas, when we will have the Magi candle, we, we are, we're reflecting on the magnificent reality that Jesus loves you, that his love has crossed such a vast distance, an unimaginable distance, so that not only can we, can we know him, can we draw from this, this wonderful gift of God's grace in our lives, but also that out of that, out of that, we, we come to see very, very vividly that God gives each of us a gift that today I want to think of in Isaiah chapter 9 as the gift of conquest. We're going to think about what it means as we turn back to the ninth chapter of the book of Isaiah to realize that in this prophetic panorama that we started to look at last week, there is a, there's an imagery that's designed, it's sent by God to, to help illuminate for us something that's, again, it's, it's so hard to fully grasp and understand. And the, the magnitude of it certainly is profound, but I want to begin with a little trivial way to describe it, that the magnitude of this truth has so many wonderful effects, and we're going to look at the biblical part of it that in a moment, but also in a practical way in all of our lives, one of the, one of the byproducts of this season of Advent, Christmas season, the celebration of the birth of Jesus, and again, even amidst all the noise and the things that can come into our lives at this time that create stress, there is a beautiful thing that happens to people's hearts sometimes in ways they don't even fully imagine it. And that is that in this time, the Holy Spirit can help all of us to make this real, that a new generosity, a generosity of spirit, an awakening to the fact that if God did all this for us, the least I can do is to be forgiving to the person who hurts me. The least I can do is be generous to respond and realize that the fallibility of other human beings is similar to my fallibility, and therefore maybe I need to have a, a little bit of a more generous response to some of the people around me that I might find a bit abrasive. Have you ever met anybody that's a little bit difficult to hang around? May I see your hand? No, don't, don't lift your hand. You'll get in trouble. But it reminds me of that wonderful section from the Grinch episode that Dr. Seuss has given all of us when he said, every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now, please don't ask why. No one quite knows the reason. It could be his head wasn't screwed on just right. It could be perhaps that his shoes were too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all may have been that his heart was two sizes too small. I think that captures why we need to have our eyes open to the simple, elegant gift of God that we celebrate in the birth of Jesus 
it's the ultimate act of giving. And, and, and just to hear about a part of it or to sing the songs that, that, that Justin and, and the worship team led us in this morning brings us a kind of a new awareness that God, in, I believe in every encounter with the Lord, he has a transformational work to do, but I think that, that, that this particular time of the year and the things that we hear and we respond to are a reminder of tangible blessings of God that sometimes we don't acknowledge in the way that we could. Well, that, that is why the very vivid imagery of Isaiah chapter 9, I think, can have a fresh relevance for us. Now, I know as I ask you to turn there, first I want you to think about the, the big picture of it, because my goal here is just in a few, in a, in a brief time, in about, about 25 minutes here, to be able to uh, put in a capsule something that's pretty dense in the text. When you go, we started in a little piece of chapter 7, and we'll go back to 7 in a moment, and then we're going to look at some things in chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 4 here. But when you put it all together, what you find is that uh, sometimes as people read their Bibles, it's easy to kind of stumble over the illustrations that we might that might not be familiar to us. And that's the case in Isaiah 9. And one reason I'd like you to look at it in your own Bible, if you would please, is to please just notice with me um, that chapter 9 of Isaiah begins with a stunning illustration from the realm of nature. We're going to look at that, and then we're going to backtrack into chapter 8 briefly to see a contrast to this beautiful imagery. Now, let's think of the imagery this way. What we're about to read here takes us to the announcement of the birth of Messiah. So in your own Bible, first, go down to verse 6 and notice where it takes us, to probably one of the best known and most beloved of all, because it capsulizes so much about Jesus, and that is, you see it in your Bible, and we'll just read a first section of it there, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And we're going to come back to that on the 19th of December. But now, I want you to go back to verse 1 and notice that what is introducing this amazing prophecy of the coming Messiah is an illustration both from nature and from this time in the history of Israel and Judah. So look with me, first of all, at verse 1 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. So across the horizon of this very familiar part of the land of Israel, but a place that's not as familiar to you and me. It's not Hanover, Pennsylvania. It's not, it's not uh, Annapolis, Maryland. It's, 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 not, uh, uh, it, it's not Richmond, Virginia. So we're in a different sphere. So for us, the names don't resonate the way they did to the ancient 
rabbis who studied this for hundreds of years. This is amazing. They studied this for hundreds of years, not knowing what the meaning could be. But here, here's a couple of clues. First of all, if you look at verse 1 and you notice the mention of the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, you're looking there at a, a place that was where the tribes of Israel had been separated regions there in the northern part of their homeland. And it was to that area that the prophet Isaiah was explaining this fierce, overpowering empire called Assyria was invading their land. Now, to think of it this way, first of all, we have to understand, too, that Israel in sheer size was so small and vulnerable to these great empires that would come into the land. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, the prophet refers to something that is in the process of happening as he speaks, and that is the Assyrian armies had come closer and closer and closer to the land called Zebulun and Naphtali. That's just, just less than 100 miles to the north of Jerusalem. They were ominously close. And the distress about the impending invasion was palpable across the land. People were literally terrified. The terror might be... A Similar, in some ways, to the terror that Americans felt in September of 2001 after the sudden and catastrophic attacks on this nation. So when we think of him in a close parallel right there, we realize that, that they were beginning to realize how vulnerable they were. Now here's what's really striking, and I'd like you to open your Bible to Matthew 4 so that you can just kind of quickly grab this as a point of, of thinking, because it helps to see what we can draw from it today in our own life. In Matthew chapter 4, the Bible tells us that Jesus began that ministry of miracles, that wonderful circuit of truth and teaching and miracles that characterized the heart of the gospel as he brought the kingdom of God in present tense to those people around him. And when we look at it in Matthew chapter 4, you can see the fulfillment of these very verses that we're reading. If you begin in your Bible at Matthew 4, verse 13, where the Bible says that leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, where? In the area of, let's say these unusual words aloud together, Zebulun and Naphtali. Because so there, here we are, Jesus has come right there to that region. So these relatively small areas of territory take on a large significance in the Bible because they're the place God chose to begin the public ministry of the Messiah whose mighty miracles and incandescent truth that 
penetrated the brains and the hearts of people in such a way that they said, no one has ever spoke like this man. These were the territories he chose, and in Isaiah's time, they were now what we might think of as stigmatized by the place of great catastrophe and fear. And God says, 775 years later, Jesus will minister in that very area, the living, only begotten Son of God, bringing the kingdom of God to earth, will choose the very place of this chosen people's desolation and bring light and hope and grace and power and transformation and renewal and the real introduction of the glorious kingdom that he brings in his person. So again, in Matthew 4, look there at uh, the end of that 13th verse, and then notice what Matthew goes on to say. Jesus' ministry by the lake, that is the Sea of Galilee, and then on to the northern parts of that, and then over across to the east of the Jordan River, all of that territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. It was done to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, and now we read in verse 15 the, the exact words that we see in Isaiah 9. So we read it, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now read verse 16, if you would. I'm reading in the ESV, excuse me, I'm reading in the NIV today. Read it with me. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. A light has dawned. Now, here is a wonderful fact about the birth of Jesus. God chose so many ways to show you and me in our time that the birth of the Lord Jesus, that little baby lying in a manger in Bethlehem, God's gift to us for a salvation we could not obtain on our own, that God uses even the very places his sandals step as signs and reminders that the power of his presence is real and alive for you today. And one way that we see this in the prophetic word is if you go back to chapter 8 now of Isaiah, and you see there that we saw earlier last week, we looked at the fact that in Isaiah chapter 8, there were uh, pictures or, or there was a presentation of three kings that were uh, that were jostling uh, to try to cope with the invading army that was coming and the two of those kings were trying to persuade Ahaz who was a king at that time that had an opportunity to learn what it meant to trust God two of those kings were trying to persuade him to uh, form an alliance whereby they could somehow hold out against the invading army and the point of chapter 8 of Isaiah is to show that, that had Ahaz listened to Isaiah's word, Isaiah had told him, God has a better plan for you than to put your trust in men. If you will trust God's promise, and it was the promise of a coming Messiah, but it also was a promise of God delivering him in that time, you will survive and thrive. And it was a 
beautiful object lesson that sometimes God brings to us in times of, of great difficulty, are a reminder, you can trust God. I know it looks bleak. I know it looks dark. I know the problems are, are seem overwhelming there, but trust God's promises. Now, as you, as you think about that, you see that in verse 18, if you look in your Bible at uh, Isaiah 8, 18, you see that here's a great example in Christmas of how God merged together prophecies that were for that specific time and fulfilled in precise detail in Isaiah's lifetime, that is the fall of certain kingdoms, and he joins it together with a future prophecy of even far greater significance. It's an amazing thing. And when he joins it together, you see it fused in the text right here in the 18th verse. I'd like you to see this because it shows us, if God, think of it like this, if God was so precise in planning for the birth of Jesus almost eight centuries later, how much more now after the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord and Savior can we know that he's Lord of all time? And that he sees your need and anticipated your problem far long before you got there. And that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He rules and reigns. So the, the prophetic part of this may look a little shadowy and obscure at times. But it's to shine a light on the fullness, the reality. Christ is born. Hark! The herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail, the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. So now in Isaiah 8.18, look at, look at a great example of this. A great example in your own Bible of how God used Isaiah the man in approximately 735 B.C., to foreshadow a greater truth of Christ the Savior. Here's what he says in Isaiah 8.18. Here am I, and the children the Lord has given me. Now remember in a quick review here that we saw last week that, um, that God used um, first this coming Assyrian invasion into Israel uh, was the overall picture of the circumstances, but God used three prophetic babies' names to be signs. Remember, we saw that, and so here in verse 18, Isaiah says, these three names, these three names are like signs because God has chosen my family, this remarkable way, this is the children, these literal children, to be signs of something greater. When you, when you put a sign on the corner, I, I years ago went to property owners because we're located out here in the trees and it was hard to see this building. And I, I went and found property owners that would let us put a sign for our church on their property so that people could be driving down the highway and say, oh, there's Liberty Church. We wanted a sign because you can't see the building, right? Well, it's the same thing. God would give signs. He would put a sign somewhere because the human eye can't see the kingdom. And Isaiah was saying, God has chosen this very unusual story of these three names so that we would be signs 
and symbols in Israel from who? From the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. Now, we won't take the time to turn here, but you might want it for your notes. That Jesus Christ is quoted as saying these words in Hebrews 2, verse 12 and 13. Jesus is quoted now as declaring, I and the children you've given me, and he's referring to the children that verse 14 of Hebrews 2 describes as you and me. That is, Christ had to be made Christ, the eternal God. Christ, eternally existing. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Word in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That he chose to put upon himself the garb of humanity, to humble himself and be made into the likeness of a human being, and even to go so far as to become an infinitesimally tiny embryo in the womb of the Virgin Mary that God had chosen. God humbled himself to become human. The Word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. And God intended, as Isaiah said, that we would see the sign and then we would recognize his glory. Now, the, the latter part of uh, chapter 8 uh, then helps us understand why was it so important for him to have this, these names of these children and why, why, why this odd um, confluence of names. The, the first and the third one, of course, very unusual. I'm not going to go back over that. But, of course, the central name, obviously, in chapter 7 and 8 is Emmanuel. Now, I want you to go back to chapter 7 and look at this name of Emmanuel in your own Bible. Go back to Isaiah 7, 14. And notice here that uh, in this chapter, what we have is God giving to each of us in a, in a really very, um, in, a, in a very cryptic way, this realization that the Lord himself will give you a sign. Now, we might think of it like this, that whenever God uses the word sign, it is always to make it very clear to us that the reality is far greater than the sign. So the name of a coming birth was to be a sign. The virgin, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so in the, in the center of these three prophetic names is the name, the luminous name that towers over the centuries of time. And embedded in the very noun of the virgin there is, is a fascinating fact that God chose to do something that would blow the biology books to bits, that God chose to do something that is physically and humanly completely impossible, and that he pins the coming of his kingdom and the glory of his plan on that which is totally impossible to human beings. And so the two prophetic names on the, uh, on the outer, uh, the, the first and the third, point to specific events. And those events were fulfilled in 722 and in 669 B.C. with precise accuracy. And then this great dual prophecy gives a prophecy of before this little baby in verse 15 is, is able to eat milk and honey, 
the land will be delivered of the two um, kings that were trying to threaten Ahaz, the smaller kings, and that was literally fulfilled. But then embedded in the noun of virgin is, is a, an intriguing fact that um, there were two different words that could be used for a young woman, and the word alma was, could be used just for a very, very young unmarried person, un- unmarried woman. Uh, but the more common word for a virgin was Bethla, and that one at times could be used two times in the Bible as a married woman. Now, some have puzzled over why did the, why did the choice of this word Alma, why was it used? And it's interesting that about 200 years before the birth of Jesus, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek from Hebrew, the famous Septuagint that the scholars translated that word directly as the Greek word for virgin. And the rabbis and the scribes knew there could only be one explanation for that because that is the word that specifically means a virgin, not a married woman. And the scribes of those that era, when the Septuagint was translated, not only observed it, but puzzled over it for centuries. What could possibly have been the meaning of the prophet's word carefully chosen to indicate it had to be a young woman, it had to be a virgin. And then we read, of course, in Matthew chapter 1, the fulfillment of that great prophecy. So when we go through it and recognize what actually happened, what we find is that God in chapter 9 is telling us, if you go back now to the end of chapter 8, There is a contrast with darkness and light that helps us see why this light spanning across the horizon was God's sign that we can take to our hearts today. There is a contrast with chapter 8 in the deep darkness of people seeking for answers in the wrong places. I'm not going to go too far with this, but I do want to touch on it and have you see it in your own Bible. If you look at verse 19 of chapter 8 of Isaiah, there's a warning against something that is still practiced in many parts of the world today, and that is occult practices. People looking to a seance, or people looking to the occult, or people looking to astrology, or people looking to mental telepathy, or to some form of imagined karma to find meaning in life. And the prophet specifically warns, alongside other passages of the Bible, that that is not only a fruitless search, but it is a search that will spiral you spiritually down into darkness. Look at these odd words in your own Bible in in Isaiah 8, 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? It's an amazing, direct warning, not only against the occult, But it's a warning against seeking answers like Ahaz did in places that will fail you. I actually saw this as a young person brought into a situation because of a family connection when I was with cousins in Texas, cousins of mine in Texas. 
and they were into seances. I was just a little kid, and I was drawn into this room quite innocently and, and was drawn into this whole occultic thing going on. And I, and I remember later when I came to the Lord and I was filled with the Holy Spirit, and I began to realize I was the Holy Spirit was dealing with my heart about renouncing anything that might have been an open door into my life that, that he wanted to free me from. And uh, that came to mind. I began to say I renounce my connection with that. And, and as I did so, a, a, a kind of, a, of a, an awakening and awareness for me was that in the Christian life today, we need to recognize why following Jesus is so far greater than any aspect of life's pursuits that we could possibly imagine. That is, any many things that we look at that are designed to answer our deepest needs are a downward spiral. But Isaiah points to this in this way in verse 20 of Isaiah 8. And again, stay with me on this because I think you'll see how beautiful it is to realize the power of the word of God. Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Then he traces a whole downward spiral into darkness, and he shows that there are three aspects of this darkness that come through in the prophetic book of Isaiah. In chapter 5, it's a devastation of the soul. In chapter 8 here, what we've seen is it's a deception. So there's a downward spiral of devastation, loss of meaning, loss of purpose, there's a deceptiveness of turning away from God and wanting to find answers for the soul in the realm of the supernatural, hoping that somehow way out there in that ethereal area we'll find hope and meaning. And then, of course, in Isaiah 40, I want you to see this one before we close today, because here is this great prophecy that culminates everything that we saw in chapter 9, and that is in Isaiah 49, Verse 7, again, the Lord Jesus is prophesied, and the prophecy in Isaiah 49, 7 shows us that no person, and let's apply it in this sanctuary today, that no person needs stay in the prison house of pursuing hope outside of God. There is a free, open, welcome from Almighty God to bring your hurts, to bring your cares, to bring your brokenness, to bring those places of captivity and come into the conquest of the king. For he said that the dawning of the hope of Messiah is spreading across the very land where the Israelites experienced their deepest hurt. I want to say it on a personal level, the same for us. You can look across the landscape of your life as I did when I was describing what I went through then. And I can say, at the point where darkness entered my life, there I trust God's conquering dawn in Christ to flood my whole being. God himself promises this. Look as we finish up today in Isaiah 49, verse 7. This is what the Lord says. These are emphatic statements, by the way, in Isaiah. There's an emphasis on the Lord himself is sending this word. What does he say in Isaiah 49, 7? The Redeemer and the Holy One of Israel, to, who, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nations, to the servant of rulers, 
Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see and bow down. This is our king, friends. This is God describing the coming Messiah. His magnificence will be such that emperors and princes will bow before him because of the Lord who is faithful. And then we read in verse 8, words that clarify the gift of salvation you can experience today. This is what the Lord says. In the time of my favor, I will answer you. And in the day of salvation, I will help you. I will keep you and make you a covenant for the people to restore the land and to reassign its desolate inheritances. And then finally, verse 9, to say to the captive. You see it in Isaiah 49, 9. I hope maybe you would even mark it in your Bible today. Mark in your Bible a, a place of reminder. There's no dark corner out of which God's mighty dawn cannot deliver you. There's no place of despair out of which, from which the light of the glory of Christ himself cannot flood and chase away the shadows. Look at it in verse 9. He'll say to the captives, come out, and to those in darkness, be free. This today is what the Holy Spirit is doing in our midst. He is calling us. He's, he's giving us in this Advent time, in this Christmas, in a, at the end of a very difficult year in many people's lives. He gives us this day of salvation, the day of his favor. Hear it. Receive it. He says, be free. Come out from that darkness. The dawn of Christ's coming. The dawn of the incarnate God taking upon himself humanity, dwelling among us, paying the ultimate price in his atoning death on Calvary's cross, being raised from the dead, exalted to the right hand of God. The light of who he is floods the landscape where darkness and trouble and oppression had once ruled. Now let's pray. And as we do, remember that one way Jesus, I'm personalizing this prayerfully as your pastor, but Jesus personalized it too in Luke 11 when he said that no, when he said that um, you need not fear anything that might come against you when Christ dwells in you, because I give you authority. Luke 10:19, I give you authority. Say the word authority with me. Authority. Say the word authority. Authority. I give you authority, he said, to tread on serpents and scorpions and to triumph over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus was there speaking not of a human conquest, but of the conquest that we share as followers of Jesus. And he, he amplified by addressing the wonder of the disciples when they came back and they saw that, that demons had fled at the very word of the Lord, when they saw that God had even used them, humble and fallible disciples, to be instruments of, of seeing great breakthroughs in the lives of people and great miracles. And Jesus said, don't rejoice because of the demons fleeing and, and, and the darkness being chased away. That's, that's great. But the greatest of all is to rejoice in knowing that your names are written in heaven. That is, Jesus put the accent on your 
personal relationship with Christ. Just as the children sang this morning, Jesus loves me, this I know. He put the accent on the personal. You can know him. He says to you, this is your day of deliverance to be free, to come out, to believe. Thank you, Lord. Now, we also pray as we begin to sing here today, and in a few moments we'll be departing, but we want to we want to recognize here as well, the body of Christ has a wholeness, an integrity, a, a connectedness that we want to always know and share and cherish. Lord, there are friends among us who are dealing with difficulties and health challenges, and we come before your throne and pray your mighty healing virtue and strength and blessing to those. Some today who couldn't be here because of either quarantining because of a family member having a diagnosis or a, a positive COVID test, in other cases out of an abundance of caution. God, bless them wherever they are. Touch their hearts and their lives. Bring them that hope. We thank you for your blessing upon Jeanette in the rehab center that you'll bring hope and strength and blessing to her in, in the progressive healing. Lord, for Mr. Earl Curran, we ask an increasing of wellness and healing. Lord, that you would bless him spiritually, mentally, emotionally in that rehab center there in Virginia. Lord, that you would give him grace of recovery, bring comfort and wholeness to his soul. Lord, bring him a sense of the companionship of the Holy Spirit. Lord, for Cookie Curran, for Maureen's mother in the other rehab center, we ask your healing virtue and strength and blessing and rapidly bless, bless her rapid healing toward recovery and full regaining of ability to use her knees. Lord, we thank you that in these and all of the areas where we pray for healing, we can bring them before your throne knowing that you're the God of the impossible. Thank you, Lord, for blessing each of them. Thank you for your powerful grace to lead us in triumph as we pray. And even when we cannot see, open our eyes to see the, the dawn of the living Christ spanning across the horizon of those areas where we once felt and knew that we were oppressed. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.